to come in, he must be pretty sure that you're going to go along with him in the end. The reality is, I had no doubt that if we went to trial, we were going to convict him. If he can convince me, then I will dismiss the case. I don't want to prosecute somebody who's innocent. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today electronically is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And Jim, we want our listeners to know that we are not together in the studio today. No, I am safe and sound all the way in New York, and you are? I'm in Atlanta. I always feel like, Jim, you feel occasionally the need to flee from me. Yes, well, <laughs> well, you're very perceptive at times. Anyway, so we have today a very special guest, a long-term wonderful friend of mine and professional colleague, that is... Dennis McInerney, and I am currently a lawyer in New York at a law firm named Davis Polk. And what have you done in the past? So uh, I've had a couple of stints in DOJ. That's the Department of Justice. Uh, I think Francie worked there, but I don't know. You didn't really have any. <laughs> I was Jim's boss, Dennis. I was Jim's boss. Really? Uh, well, Pretty Jim, much. Jim was my boss, actually. When yeah. I was. <laughs> oh, no, Dennis, don't say that. <laughs> no, he was. He was. <laughs> we worked together on some really amazing cases. But today, Dennis, we're here to talk to you about one of the best or worst cases of your career. And you get to pick what it is, and you get to hold off to the end to tell us whether it is a best or worst case. So what point in your career did the case you're going to talk to us about occur? I think it was 1991. 1991. But where was that in your career? So I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. That's the Southern District of New York? That's right. Also known as SDNY to those of us in DOJ. There you go. That's right. Okay. And, and probably the-, the flagship office, right? Well, other than Atlanta, Jim. Other than Atlanta. Atlanta is not the flagship <laughs> office of the U.S. Attorney's <laughs> Office. But anyway... You're at the flagship office of the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Yes, yes. And, and I was in the narcotics unit. At the time. In the narcotics unit. Okay. Yeah. And where was that in your career? Had you done anything before? 
like how many years were you there? What's going on? Yeah, so I graduated law school in 1984, clerked for a couple of years. Then wait, whoa, 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 clerked for a couple of years. You hear how fast he said that? Yeah, he did say that fast enough that it makes me wonder if we've got kind of a big time clerkship here. Well, who did you clerk for? I clerked for Judge Duffy, Kevin Thomas Duffy in the Southern District of New York. The Great. District judge was there for a couple of years with the judge. Awesome. Federal clerkship. Yep. Good experience. All right. And then after you clerk? And then I spent almost three years at Davis Polk um, doing just civil cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I left Davis Polk and went to SDNY in 1989. Great. Okay. So you're now a few years into your tenure. Yep. And you're at the narcotics division. In, in the narcotics unit. Okay. And on the day that this case came in, what were you doing? What physically were you doing when the case came into you? I don't remember exactly, but... So you were doing narcotics at the time? I was, I was not <laughs> doing narcotics. I was in the unit. Oh, okay. But uh, I may have been the uh, duty assistant at the time, but I got a phone call uh, telling me that uh, they had arrested, they being the Coast Guard, had arrested a guy named Gaston Robinson. Wow. Well, okay. First of all... I didn't even know the Coast Guard arrested anybody, so that's a new one for me. Yes. How, what, what? So Gaston Robinson was on a boat about 150 miles south of the Panama Canal. Okay. And it was a fishing vessel. Okay. Wait, wait. South of the Panama Canal. That's, that is not in the United States. I know. We're like really confused no. at this point. <laughs> Go ahead, Gaston. Gaston was in a boat uh, with three other people. Okay. It was a fishing vessel that had no fishing equipment on it. Ah, interesting. Hmm. And the Coast Guard uh, approached the fish fishing vessel in part because there were bales of cocaine within a half a mile of the fishing vessel, about six of them. Floating? Floating, with big uh, X's on them, and they each had a lot of cocaine in them. Really? So Dennis, I have to I have to interrupt here and ask you a quick question. You said that you were the duty AUSA. I handled the duty phone many times uh, when I was the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta, and I have to say I'm pretty sure I never got a phone call that there was a fishing vessel with bales of cocaine floating in the water. That is a new one on me. Yeah, well, it was definitely new on me as well. Okay, so this is interesting. So they told you that they found these six. Big bales of cocaine floating in the water. I didn't know cocaine bales could float, but that's okay. And they arrested this guy. Yeah. Well, what they did was they went to the boat. They found Gaston on the boat with his brother, Clayton Robinson. Okay. They were both in their uh, 60s, maybe late 50s. For really? Clayton. So it's a family affair here. Right. And then there was another guy, I forget his name, uh, who was in his 50s. And then there was a kid. And his name was Porto Palomino. Oh, really? How old was the kid? He was about 21. Okay. Porto and Palomino. That's so that's, cool. That sounds fair. That sounds completely fair. And, and uh, they had no fishing equipment. Really? On this fishing vessel. Really? Right. So they were inquiring the Coast Guard as to what was going on on this fishing vessel. They were. And they got the various identifications of the four people on the boat. Mm -hmm. And when they ran Gaston Robinson's name, mm -hmm. they learned that Gaston was a fugitive. Really? From a 1975 case. Wow. Wait, this was in like 91 from 75? That's right. Wow. And Gaston Robinson 
1975, the day that a very critical witness testified against him when he was charged with smuggling marijuana, as I recall, Mm. into the United States, he decided he didn't like the testimony from that day. Mm. And so he fled. So he has been in the wind since 1975? Yes. In the middle of a trial? That's right. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. So now you're on complaints. You're, you know, a few years into your job there on the narcotics division. And what do you do when you hear all this stuff So for the first time in your whole career? So I talked to the smarter people in the office about, well, which well. is basically everyone in the office. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, just so you know, I mean, Dennis is okay, but you know, smart people are around him. So that's good. So I, I talked to them about the fact that We've got this guy, Gaston Robinson, who's been in the wind for 16 years. They've caught him. And they actually, in addition to finding the six bales, uh, when they got the boat to the dock, they wound up doing a search. And while they couldn't see it at first, they wound up finding out that there were two tons of cocaine that were hermetically sealed in the belly of the boat. Really? Tons? Two tons. Yes. 4,000 pounds, just so you know. Oh, my God. What was the street value of something like that then, Dennis? I don't know the exact number, but it was in the millions, very significant. And certainly more than you would make on an average weekend of work. Yes. (laughs) And what was interesting is, therefore, they had already sealed the cocaine in the belly of the boat, left their dock, and were in the water to pick up more cocaine because they had airdropped the six bales that each had the somebody else airdropped it to them. Right. And they put big red X's because otherwise they wouldn't wouldn't notice that there were big (laughs) bales of white cocaine floating in the ocean. I guess, well, it's a good thing. They, they think ahead. I don't, I I don't know why they did that, but okay. So yeah, you got this information. They got all this cocaine. What did they tell you next? What, what's coming? Well, they're asking, what do we do? Oh, really? And so I'm talking to the smarter people in the office. Okay. And they say, okay, here's the deal. Obviously, Gaston is wanted because he's a fugitive. So we got to bring him back to the States. But we've got a bunch of other people, three other people, who we can charge as well. Because narcotics trafficking on the high seas is something that you in the United States can have jurisdiction over. Really? Yes. And what if it's a low sea that day? Well, fortunately, it was a high season, Okay, so great. I just wondered. I mean, this is really important. I'm sure that the defense <laughs> would argue that this was not a high C day. Again, I just don't think I ever had a case where the crime occurred on the high seas. This is very dramatic. Yes. Well, it was pretty dramatic for me, too. And then I, I learned a fact that I didn't know in terms of the law, which is to have venue in the Southern District of New York for a case like this you needed to have these individuals flown into New York directly into the Southern District of New York. Because so, wherever they flew into, that's where you'd have venue for them. So do you have an airport at the Southern District of New York? We have Stewart Air Force Base. We do, huh? And as I recall, Stewart Air Force Base is in the Southern District, and that's where we flew. Wow. Gaston, Clayton, Porto, and uh, Archibald Bernal. So was that before or after Stewart Air Force Base became... A regular commercial airport. I don't know. Okay. But you were saying Air Force Base, so it's probably still the Air Force Base. I know at some point 
in those years. Well, maybe it was Stewart Airport. So, yeah. so I, I I don't know. But okay, it wasn't it wasn't a challenge to get. I know there. it's too bad you couldn't ask somebody who was smarter whether that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, don't worry about it. Thank you. John. Um, that's okay. Anytime. Right. I'm getting you back for what you did to me today. Anyway, so um, Dennis and I spoke at the New York Bar Association today, and. And I got to ask Jim the questions, <laughs> yes, which I liked did. a lot more. Very nice. <laughs> I, I got to when that happened to me. I got to show a few pictures of Jim. Yes, in yes. his undercover capacity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so now that you're flying all four of these, the fugitive and his three accomplices, his three, his three alleged accomplices. alleged accomplices. That's, oh, that's listen to this, important. Francie. That's important, Francie. For this, story. Jim, are you look, important? we have a lawyer here. Stop messing with him. I know, but a defense lawyer, obviously. Anyway, so the three alleged accomplices and the alleged fugitive or the actual fugitive? The actual fugitive. How do we know that? Give me a break. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you fly them in. We fly them in. I don't even know what you do next. Do you? Sure. So uh, I actually, at some point, go down to Panama. (laughs) <laughs> look at the boat and do some that sounds like a boondoggle oh my god jim that's so scary i was just literally about to say that sounds like a boondoggle <laughs> it Stop. was not a boondoggle i can tell you it was okay. very hot it was very um, hot but it was one of my very few trips as a southern district prosecutor out wow. of new york and so because now you flew down to panama so they brought it to was it u.s territory in panama was it Part of the canal or something yeah, that the we Panama control? Canal. That's where the boat had come from, and that's where oh. they, they. That's where the boat was, and so I ah, wanted to go and see. Got it. Everything and um, and did you find the two tons of cocaine? I don't remember, frankly. Really, I'm sure that we had it though. Okay, um, must have. So, but then the case uh, we we wound up having about 18 months to get some international discovery in connection with it. And so in the meantime, the four individuals were all uh, obviously in jail. Really? Well, I assume that uh, your main guy was considered a flight risk at this point and not let out on bond this time, hopefully. That's correct. And all of them were quite easily uh, remanded uh, pending trial. Now, what did you argue? Did you argue for them to be held pending trial? Sure. Sure. And so was this a unique situation for you? No, that you we had did that all the time with from four guys from. Well, this particular fact pattern was unique for me. Yeah. But uh, you know, depending on what the allegations were, you would decide whether you wanted to seek uh, detention or allow them to go on bail for certain conditions. For these particular individuals, uh, who were all basically from Colombia, uh, and who a couple of them had a record in addition to Gaston, mm-hmm. not Porto. It wasn't hard to persuade the magistrate to make sure that all four were remanded pending trial. Okay, so question. Did you or any other law enforcement get an opportunity to interview or interrogate these four men? We did not. Uh, they all got lawyers. Really? Uh, we had Cartel lawyers? No, no. A couple of them had paid lawyers, as I recall. Porto had a federal defender. Oh, really? And that's an important uh, part it? of the story. Okay. Well, oh, we, that's a, Jim. That's are. a teaser. It is a teaser. <laughs> wow! Look at that. How slick did you get? Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes 
confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So you got now you got discovery going on for 18 months. Mm -hmm. Are you working a hundred other cases? Is this so almost literally? And I, I would believe it. And so at that time, how much attention did you get to pay to this case? Not, not an incredible amount. You know, we were going through the normal process, gathering some additional evidence. They filed a lot of motions. They wanted to get uh, discovery from Columbia, which was going to take a long time, and it did. And so that's why it was about 18 months before I got a, a very interesting phone call. Well, wait, okay. before you talk about the phone call, I have a quick question. What, were you continuing to deal with the Coast Guard as your case agents, or did DEA take over, or how did that happen? Uh, I am pretty sure we partnered up then with DEA, but the Coast Guard were critical witnesses because they were the ones that you know, identified the, the boat, uh, saw the- uh, The red X's floating. The, the X's, <laughs> they found the cocaine in the belly of the boat. So the Coast Guard folks were going to be critical to us as well. But it was a pretty straightforward case. It wasn't very complicated. At least we thought so. Until? Until, until the phone call. What were you doing when you got this phone call? I don't remember, Jim. Really? This was a long time ago. All right. It's a couple of weeks ago, I know. <laughs> Uh, in, our day, in our age time frame. Anyway, so, okay, so you get a phone call. Yes. Who's the phone call from? David Levitt. David Levitt. Yeah. Okay. One of the, uh, an excellent lawyer. An excellent uh, lawyer. Federal defender. A federal defender. Yeah. Was this federal defender the federal defender that was defending federally? Porto Palomino. Porto Palomino? He was. Wow, look at that. I can't and- believe you said all that, Jim, with one <laughs> breath. No, I and, and what did we find out from David Levitt? Well, so David said to me that he's done a lot of work on this case. He's been to Columbia and he actually has concluded that in his view, Porto is actually innocent. Really? Yes. Innocent of? Of the uh, crime. Of the crimes of trafficking uh, narcotics on the high seas? Yes. Okay. And was With this the being that they were going to be going to the United States and delivering the cocaine. That's the that's of, the theory. The theory of the. So Dennis, uh, the was this theory. was this federal defender someone that you had worked with before, and so you trusted him, or was he the private attorney? No, he was a federal defender that uh, you saw on lots of cases, and he, along with Roland Thau and a bunch of other federal defenders, uh, were excellent lawyers and people that. Uh, were of impeccable integrity and very zealous advocates, but they were just, you know, the real deal. They were excellent lawyers 
And so when David calls you, you take seriously whatever he has to say. Okay, so I assume you took it seriously. Yes. And you inquired further. Well, what he wanted to do, he said, is I, I believe that he is innocent. Uh, I've done a lot of research. I would like to have him come in. Queen for a day? Uh, and have an innocence proffer. Wow. Uh, and um, I will do that. I'm hoping that you're open to that. And as long as you tell me that you're open to the possibility of being persuaded by him, I'm happy to have him come in without a queen for a day. Wow. Ooh, that's Did a you hear lot. That? Uh, that says a lot. That's very wow. shocking. That that uh, would have told me a lot if a federal defender was willing to forego any of the government promises to come in. He must be pretty sure that you're going to go along with him in the end. Yeah. And Francie, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I, when I was a prosecutor in family court in the Bronx, I, I was prosecuting juvenile offenders and I told the defense attorneys, if you actually think your client is actually innocent, then bring him in, bring him in and let him talk to me. If he can convince me, then I will dismiss the case. I don't want to prosecute somebody who's innocent, but if you come in with somebody who's lying, all they're going to do is dig a deeper hole. So only use it if you really think somebody is innocent. And it happened a few times. Yeah. And they literally were able to convince me. And actually one time, it turns out it was a, well, it was a complete flip-flop. What do you mean? The person that we thought was the complainant was actually the bad guy. And we were able to get a security video that showed the assault and how... (laughs) It was our complainant who actually assaulted the guy who was in jail and wow. not the not vice versa. And so anyway, we were able to dismiss the charges and then charge the other guy, not only with the original assault, but with lying on a police report. Well, and that's I think that's one thing, Jim and Dennis, that many people don't understand about the justice system is, frankly, how closely defense attorneys, especially the public defenders in the case Uh, when I was a state prosecutor, federal defenders, when I was federal, how closely we work with them and have to have, for the most part, a cordial and trusting working relationship because otherwise the system would completely break down. You cannot go to trial on every case. You have to figure out a way to work things out. You have to make plea deals. You have to prosecute most cases that resolve with you and the defense attorney working it out. Yeah, we had our our percentage was typically about eighty five percent that we pled out. Fifteen percent went to trial. That many? Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably closer to five percent on the federal go to trial at most. Oh wow! Oh no, that's a, yeah. He's right about that. So so Dennis, do you agree and agree to see his client and agree to let him proffer? Yes, and I also say, but I'm going to have the DEA agents with me and we're going to have a vigorous cross-examination of it. And if we think he is lying, uh, we will add that charge to what he's already charged with. And he was basically facing 30 years as a result of the you know amount of cocaine that we were mm-hmm. talking about. Uh, he was 21 years old. So it was probably not going to be that much more <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, but at the same time, it was very important. Right. It was important. Uh, process point that uh, if you lie to us, we will add that charge right. and we will charge you 
and, and, and try you for that as well. And so just to flash forward for one second to the actual meeting, it was in my office. I had at least uh, two, I think it was three agents with me. And then Porto came in, you know, from the MCC uh, with David. And we well, were with him for about four hours, as I recall. Wow. Four hours. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good. I, I always, when I taught investigative interviewing, I always thought that you should plan on spending at least four hours with the person if you want to get to the truth. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to norm their behavior. You have to see what they're like. You have to get them relaxed. You have to re- build rapport. And you have to have time to then go into the deep stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's really, that's good. So you spent four hours with them. Yep. What was your initial response to him when, when he sat down across from you? You know, he was actually a pretty uh, clean cut, uh, 21-year-old, very healthy kid. And, you know, he needed a translator. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the moment I started hearing him speak and David Levitt walked him through kind of the chronology, mm-hmm. uh, I was pretty impressed with him. Okay. Uh, and what was interesting is David had gone to Columbia and had gotten his academic records Hmm. and had walked us through during the course of the discussion uh, the fact that he was a stellar student at a Naval Academy Hmm. in Columbia, and he had just recently graduated when he then went up to Panama. Sounds like a friend of ours. (laughs) Is that right? Young guy who, no, I'm just saying, a young guy who was new to the business, who... Oh, you're referring to what we were talking about yes. earlier today. Yeah. Yes, I do. That's another podcast, yeah. I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> well, this I mean, this also sounds like a lot of diligence by the defense attorney. I'm yeah. very impressed. And, and he gave us the report cards mm. and uh, walked us through a bunch of other things that were corroborative of Porto's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that just shortly before the boat you know, left the dock, he wound up because he was looking to start getting work in the boating industry. He was approached by these guys, uh, Gaston and Clayton, to join them on the boat to go. And I'm not remembering clearly enough what exactly he said he was told by Mm -hmm. them. But when he got on the boat, he had no idea that had anything to do with drugs. It's certainly physically on the boat. There was no evidence of any drugs. Mm-hmm. It was it literally in the belly of the boat. It had already been sealed up. So if he got on that boat around the time that he was able to corroborate when he got on it, we do believe that by that point, the, the drugs were already there and mm-hmm. you wouldn't have seen them. Got it. And in our fact, s- they weren't found in the first original search of that boat, right? They had to do a more intensive search of the boat to find the stuff that was hermetically sealed? Yeah, I th- I'm not remembering clearly enough. I think that they may have uh, at first approached the boat because they thought it was curious because they couldn't see any fishing equipment on it. Mm-hmm. So they got on the boat uh, and started asking questions. And then over time, as they ran Gaston's name and the other's names and they got the, the feedback, at the same time, they wound up having other Coast Guard vessels looking around mm. and found one of the bands. Right, but I'm talking about the, the cocaine that was actually sealed into the belly of the they ship. They didn't find that until, you know, after they had found the stuff around the ship. 
they had arrested them. They took it back to the dock. Right. And it was probably maybe a day or two later that they found the cocaine so in the belly of the boat. So it was reasonable that Porto did not know. Even if he inspected the boat, he may not have known. Absolutely. You okay. could get on that boat. And when I got on that boat and saw how it was laid out, you would never have known that there was okay. any cocaine. All right. So this is interesting. So now you have a person who is alleging that he's not really criminally responsible for what they were doing. Right. Didn't know what they were doing. And I just wonder, at this point, do you have potentially a cooperating witness? Well, we weren't too worried about convicting the others. Okay. Uh, and it's a good question. The first order of business was determining whether or not we were going to continue with our case against Porto. Mm -hmm. And just because he said, look, I got on the boat, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, and then before I knew it, the Coast Guard was there. And they had not yet, as the way you describe it, they had not yet picked up any of these bails. No, they hadn't picked up any of them. And so uh, you could think, though, give me a break. Mm -hmm. This kid was clearly the muscle. He was, the other guys were all older Old. guys. Yeah. And he was going to be the one helping to get the stuff out of the ocean. Right. And then he would be unloading it when they finally arrived in the U.S. He was going to do all the stuff that these older guys do. needed a kid to do. Right. And the likelihood, one could argue, is that he absolutely was told before he got on the boat, this is what you're going to do. Right. And he was all for it. And it was a good way to make some good money. And, you know, so... So the big challenge for us after they left was, well, what do you think? And so when Porto left with David after the four hours, I looked at the three agents and I said, okay, well, you're the jury. And you just heard Porto's uh, story. We just spent four hours cross-examining him. Beyond a reasonable doubt, that's the standard. What do you think? What do you think? What are you going to vote for? Guilty or not guilty? What do they say? They all looked at me like, this is a tough one. Yeah. Oh, and if the agents think it's a tough one, the jury's never going to get it. Well, actually, I then said to them, look, I think you just answered the question, don't you? And the reality is, I had no doubt that if we went to trial, we were going to convict them. Really? This is a Colombian kid who's on a boat, clearly going to be the muscle. They got two tons of cocaine in the boat. They got another half a ton of cocaine outside of the boat that he's going to be picking up. There's no way a New York jury, you know, with Gaston Robinson, the fugitive from smuggling drugs into the United States from 1975, his brother who has a record, as I recall. Are you trying to say that New York juries are cynical? I would have thought that a reasonable jury could come quickly to the uh, be very comfortable that all four of the people on that boat were involved in a drug conspiracy and they're going to convict. Okay. But what did the DEA agents say? They were the ones that were with me saying, this is a tough one. And I said, if it's a tough one, we got to cut them loose. Mm -hmm. There's just no issue whatsoever. Because? Because I would much rather a guilty guy go free than an innocent person go to jail. This is where prosecutors get a bad name and why I'm so glad to hear you talk about this because this is what is meant by prosecutorial discretion. 
It is up to the judgment of the prosecutor. If you think you have an innocent person or you think you can't prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, it becomes your responsibility, your obligation to see that justice, whatever that looks like, is done. I think the public still thinks that prosecutor's job is to get a conviction when, in fact, it is to do justice. However, yeah, well, that and one of the big issues that I have had on occasion over the 35 years that I've been doing this is you run into prosecutors every once in a while mm-hmm. who say, well, look, the standard for an indictment is not beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. The standard for an indictment is probable cause. And it is not my job to you know, decide, well, is it beyond a reasonable doubt or not? It's probable cause. It is clearly a case where there is probable cause, and therefore I'm going forward with it. And then I'm just going to lay out for the jury what the evidence is to support a potential conviction, and the defense will lay out his or her view of the evidence and why they don't think it's sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt. And then it's the jury's job, not right. my job, but in the to meantime, make that decision. Right. But in the meantime, in the Southern District of New York, at least back in the day when when we were operating there, that has with it about a $250,000 price tag. In other words, if you actually want to defend yourself in a major trial in the Southern District of New York, you're going to have to pay serious legal fees. And what if you can't afford that? That means you're going to put somebody through all of that potentially you're admitting that prosecutor is admitting that he doesn't know if he actually is guilty and yet he's going to keep going forward. Right. But I've encountered prosecutors, not many, but more than I would ever have wanted to, who basically took that view that Mm -hmm. it is not their job uh, to determine whether the evidence is sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt. Their job is if it's probable cause, I can indict, I should indict, and then I'll present the case and then they'll present their case, and the jury will decide. It's the jury's job. And I, I think yeah, that's, I think that's wrong. really wrong. And I think that uh, I'm very glad that everywhere I've been, uh, Southern District and then down to Maine Justice much later in my career, there, were, there was never any pushback when I said, I don't want to bring this case or I want to nolly this case. Mm-hmm which is what you have to do if you're already indicted. You just said nolly. That means you got to tell our listeners what the hell that means. Nolly prosecue, which is basically saying we are dismissing the case that we've already brought with prejudice. So you won't bring it back again. Right. Actually, let me reflect on that for one second. I certainly dismissed it. Got the supervisors in the office to quickly agree. And, uh, I'm not positive that it would have been without prejudice, okay. with, with prejudice, because, uh, you know, if something new came up, we could say, well, we got to recharge it now. Got it. So it's possible that that you could have brought it again. But so you dismissed the case against Porto, Porto, but you went forward against the other three defendants? Well, it's an interesting question you ask. It is. Yes, because after Porto was dismissed and released, we got a call from Clayton's lawyer mm-hmm. who wanted to have Clayton come in for an innocence proffer. Really? And this is the brother of Gaston. The fugitive yes. who smuggled drugs into the United States before and then fled. Yes. Okay. I want to hear what the hell this guy said. Well, this is a very different innocence uh, proffer story because 
Clayton came in with his lawyer and I said exactly to him what I had said to Porto, mm -hmm. which was basically laying out that we are willing to listen to you. We but, have an open mind, but I can tell you if we believe you are lying, we absolutely will be adding a charge of lying to federal officers and we will seek a stiffer sentence than we'd otherwise be seeking. Uh, if we believe that you have lied to us today. Okay. So with that, do you still want to speak to us? Just as I said to Porto. And at that point, Clayton didn't say anything. He actually started to list to the side and it became apparent within about 20 seconds that he seemed to be having a heart attack. Oh, geez. Oh, wow. And I pretty quickly with his lawyer concluded that this looks like a very serious situation. So I immediately turned around and called 911 mm -hmm. and asked for an ambulance immediately. It took um, maybe 20 minutes. I, I, it was much longer than you would like under those circumstances. They uh, got there. They put him in a stretcher and rushed him out. And within less than an hour, uh, I got a phone call uh, saying that he didn't make it. Boy. Oh, wow. And so that was a terrible tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, it's impossible to know. You, you're under incredible pressure to begin with as a yeah. defendant in any case. Uh, he was under incredible pressure. Uh, about to try to persuade us that he was innocent. I do think I'm personally, I was and am very confident that he was doing it simply because, you know, it was a Hail Mary. He saw that it worked for Porto. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, why not? Let's give it a shot. But um, he seemed to be extremely concerned as I was walking through for him. Uh, the consequences of lying, et cetera, and the, the, all the circumstances, the DEA agents there, et cetera, uh, the pressure obviously got to him. And I just have a question. Could you or did you charge his brother then with felony murder? Because the circumstances to which... No, I did not give any thought to that. <laughs> well, I just thought, you know... Jim wants to bring the hammer down. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel a little attenuated. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, just a thought. So, so that was kind of the postscript to that. And we never wound up having a trial. Uh, Gaston had to, uh, as I recall, plead guilty, you know, because he had the 1975 case where he was mm. just, I guess, saying dead in the water isn't necessarily right way to express it right probably not this point situation here but uh and then archibald i frankly don't exactly remember he must have uh he obviously i think pled guilty but i don't remember the details on all that what ended up happening with gaston did he i'm pretty sure that uh i'd have to look up what happened i'm pretty sure that it wasn't too many years after that that he wound up passing away in prison Okay. He but, was an older guy. But he got sentenced to a long term in prison? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he got sentenced to a substantial amount of time. I do not remember how much. Okay, but Francie, what do you call that sentence? I call that a pine box sentence because he's coming out in a pine box. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that would be an accurate assessment mm -hmm. of, of Cold. what happened to but, Gaston. Yes. So, Dennis. 
this is a very interesting case, obviously, but I'm really struggling. Do you call this a best case or a worst case? Oh, I think this is a best case. Can you my tell us my why? perspective is I was really proud of the DEA agents. I was really proud of David Levitt. Uh, I was proud of Porto Palomino, and I was proud of the supervisors in SDNY. Everybody just wanted to get it right. Mm. And, and everybody, you know, we concluded, uh, the DEA agents and I, you know, in our guts, we thought there's a good chance that Porto is in fact guilty. But nobody disagreed for one second that if there's even a, any possibility that he really is innocent, we don't want to go anywhere near the possibility of keeping this guy in jail for another day. Right. And certainly, if he got sentenced to 30 years and, and he was possibly innocent, I, how do you live with yourself? Yeah, exactly. So I, I just thought it was, you know, it made me really proud to be part of the office and part of the justice system where if, it's, if we're letting a guilty guy go free, that's fine. We have to deal with that because we cannot have the alternative. Uh, well, well said. Well said. Francie, stop that. <laughs> Tim, even hundreds and hundreds of miles away, we're on the same wavelength. I know you find that as comforting as I oh, do. Oh, it's very comforting to me. <laughs> well, Dennis, thank you so much for talking to us about this case. It was really interesting. Totally not something I expected at all. And I know you blew Francie's mind too. And I'm sure our listeners would be very fascinated hearing this. And we hope we can have you back sometime to talk to us about another case in your illustrious career. I would love it. This has been really fun. All right, cool. I wasn't sure what to expect, and it wound up not being as painful as I expected. Very good. Well, then, right. then you're in. We're definitely having you back, Dennis. Thank well, you very much. <laughs> until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org. Oh,